3: so he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand and he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done which is music to his ears call clickgranger.com or just stop by granger for the ones who get it done all rise
4: welcome to the cyber law and business report Get the top story on the hot-button Internet legal topics of the day. This is your home for the latest on Internet law and policy. Hear the latest net trends impacting business and have your questions answered right here. This is the Cyber Law and Business Report. Now, please welcome your host, the founder of the
2: Internet Law Center, Bennett Kelly. Good morning. This is Bennett Kelly broadcasting live from the Internet Law Center here in the heart of Silicon Beach in Santa Monica. Please be seated. We got a great show for you today, and um, we're going to be covering some pretty hot topics, and they're right from the front pages of your newspapers. Um, starting with the issue of net neutrality, and then in the second half of the show, we're going to talk about. Um, The war over whistleblowers and the um, basically free speech in the digital age, um, particularly in the age of NSA surveillance and um, crackdown on whistleblowers by the Obama administration, which has caused um, the citizens for the protection of journalists to express some concern about um, what's the extent to which that impinges free speech, and we're going to be hearing from someone from there um, later in the second half hour. So, but to start off with the big news of the week, um, it is uh, maybe it seems to be shaping up between um, a battle between um, Obama, the dingo, and the Dumbo. So, um, President Obama, um, shortly after the midterm election results came in, um, made a speech in which he called for. The Federal Communications Commission to move forward with strong um, net neutrality rules, and he um, basically stated that we, we need a free and open internet. And um, you know, as we've had we've heard on this show, um, there, the issue of net neutrality has been thrown back to the Federal Communications Commission as a result of a recent decision by the DC circuit that the prior net neutrality rules approved by former chairman Julius Janikowski um, did not um, exceeded these um, did not adequately state its authority and um, attempted to regulate the, um, the service of internet, um, internet service as a common carrier without designating it as such. And just by way of background, um, the free the notion that communication s- transmitted should be um, sent without discrimination um, is something that is centuries old. In 1860, the Pacific Teleg- Telegraph Act guaranteed that messages received shall be impartially transmitted in the order of their reception, and so. In 2002, in the early days of the Bush administration, um, Colin Powell's son Michael Powell, who was then chairman of the FCC and very well tied to the cable industry lobby, um, made a determination that cable broadband providers are information services, and that is distinct um, from you know common carrier, and they don't have to share the lines with competing Internet service providers. Um, and so rec- they we reclassified information services as not being subject to the um, prior uh, regime of being a common carrier status. So you often hear whether they, they, the information services for internet service providers should be treated as a common carrier, which is the section two. Of the uh, Communications Act or um, Section 1. And so that has been the big distinction. If you designate them as a common carrier, then um, the FCC's authority to regulate them is greater. Um, if you just did maintain the existing um, framework that was set by um, a rule of the FCC itself and not by Congress, then um, you're somewhat limited. So, and. Howell's FCC actually issued the very first net neutrality rules in 2005, which were um, general principles under their Title I authority. And, um, and then what we saw, those principles were that um, in order to encourage broadband deployment and preserve and promote the open and interconnected nature of the public Internet, consumers are entitled to access the lawful Internet content of their choice run applications and use services of their choice subject to needs of law enforcement, connect their choice of legal devices that do not harm the network, and competition among network providers, application and service providers, and content providers. Those are the main um, principles that um, were enunciated by the FCC under Chairman Powell. At a certain point, you have um, at and Chairman um, Edward Whiteacre um, really ignited the debate over net neutrality when in 2005 he says, they don't have any wires or fiber out there. They use my lines for free and that's bull. For Google or Yahoo or Vonage or anyone to expect to use these pipes for free is nuts. Keep in mind that what AT&T's chairman was referring to are pipes that consumers are paying for access, to access their choice of um, internet um Services and somehow um, now AT&T decided that they want to charge the uh, the other ends of the pipe, and that's what has kind of ignited the whole net neutrality debate. Um, and then moving further in 2008, it was discovered that Comcast was actually throttling um, high volume users um, in order to um, in- disrupt especially um, certain websites. If they were going to file-sharing websites, um, they would sometimes be throttled. And um, in doing so, it interfered with their connection to the Internet. And they did this without any disclosure to the consumers. And this this really took um, then-FCC Chairman Martin, who was a Bush appointee, um, by surprise, and he was quite appalled by it. And they actually decided to do enforcement proceedings against Comcast in 2008, and, um, and what was interesting was they, they said that Comcast had violated the principles and the total fine imposed on Comcast was zero. Nonetheless, Comcast appealed, and they went to the D.C. Circuit, and in 2010, Judge Hattel, um wrote that the FCC failed to cite any statutory authority that would justify its order compelling a broadband provider to adhere to open network management practices. And that was in 2010. So the whole issue of net neutrality then fell into the lap of new FCC chairman, um, who was Julius Janikowski, who was actually a a classmate with um, President Obama on the Harvard Law Review. And in 2010, after much deliberation, um, the Janikowski FCC adopted what is known as the open internet order, which basically codified um, the uh, prior open the net neutrality principles. So um, that was done by a, a party line vote of the FCC because it is an independent commissioner with um, Republican and Democratic um, members. And so um, Congress actually immediately tried to overturn the uh, the open internet order and um, came close, but... Um, passed the House, but it fails to pass in the Senate. And uh, using the whole mantra that this is a takeover of the Internet, when actually all it is is just allowing um, free and open um, use of the Internet and preventing a takeover of the Internet by um, cable providers and um, ISPs. So Verizon then appeals the new open Internet orders, which brought us to beginning of this year, 2014, and the very same Judge tell. <laughs> <laughs> kind of said, okay, you had your mulligan, uh, what'd you do with it? And uh, he recognized that the, for the first time, the FCC has authority over the Internet, but they cannot impose common carrier obligations, which is the Section 2 obligations you often refer to, um, without reclassifying broadband providers. And what, what Janikowski was criticized for was that he was trying to thread the needle, he was trying to have both Title I and Title II authority, um, but without making that determination, just because he was afraid of the political ramifications on Capitol Hill. So all this blows up, and um, it falls into the lap of new FCC Chairman um, Wheeler, um, who a lot of people were somewhat suspicious of, because he had been uh, spent his career working with the cable lobby, and so and to, to that point, um, last week tonight with John Oliver, one of the very first segments was <laughs> a very amusing piece um, that compared um, Chairman Wheeler to a um, entrusting that neutrality to Chairman Wheeler was akin to entrusting your baby to a dingo. And uh, actually, had an interesting image of a baby sitting in front of a dingo, and the um, the piece was went amazingly viral to the point that um, Chairman Oliver actually, um, excuse me, Chairman um, Wheeler actually had to state, "I am not a dingo," um, in a press conference. And so, um, and then this led to um, in a mass protest, the Internet Slowdown Day. And all this while Wheeler was making a proposal that, would, in essence, would allow um, what AT&T Chairman uh, Whiteacre had said years ago to allow them to charge at both ends of the pipe. So consumers, um, you pay your access, but they can also charge um, Netflix or other providers a higher amount to give them priority access. And that's what that was really the, the key part of net neutrality. It's all about non-discrimination. And, um, and then so we have to jump forward to the fall. In October, President Obama said we expect that whatever final rules emerge to make sure that we're, create, we're not creating two or three or four tiers of the Internet. So that's what this battle has been about all along. And so President Obama just made clear after the midterm elections that what we're talking about now is that we want to uh, make sure that we're not uh, having a two-tier internet. Now, there's an interesting nuance here, and that is that um, the Federal Communications Commission is an independent commission, and um, it is not a agency like the Justice Department or um, any other dep- one of the other cabinet departments um, that is actually an arm of the president. It is an independent commission. And so it can de- to make its determination without um, regard for what President Obama thinks. Now, granted, um, in, obviously he's been appointed by President Obama, but he's an independent commissioner. He has a set term. He can't be removed absent malfeasance. And so we ha- you have Wheeler who actually responded to the pressure from Obama by saying, hey, we're independent. We, we, make, we will make our determination, almost expressing some, some, a bit of umbrage um, at the pressure from the president. So you have this showdown between the president and the commissioner of the SEC that he appointed himself um, on an issue that the president campaigned on. You know, Net neutrality was something he's campaigned on both in his election and re-election. And so this was an important issue for him. And so um, then you throw into the mix, um, you throw into the mix now with this going on, and um, you have Senator Ted Cruz, who's um, definitely been known to, um, to make controversial and sometimes ill-informed statements. And he said that applying net neutrality um, would be like um, applying Obamacare to the Internet. The analogy made absolutely no sense. It was something that wouldn't even make it wouldn't even fly on Dumb and Dumber. Um, So it actually backfired. And there's a great piece um, by Oatmeal, just totally um, eviscerating um, Ted Cruz for making this idiotic remark. So um, you know, net neutrality is not about a government takeover of the internet. It's quite the opposite. It's about establishing rules that have been in place you know for centuries that you don't have discrimination and that everything that we've talked about. Um, over the years about what neutrality is about, it's about preventing discrimination, um, for example. And, the, and a lot of the cable providers have said, well, you know, there's no evidence of preventing these things actually happening. That's what they said in 2006, 2007. But then we, we've seen it has happened. Um, the FTC um, recently filed an action against AT&T um, because it was discriminating against um, its users by preventing them from accessing um, high levels of of the Internet um, by by throttling them without disclosure. And um, and we've also seen evidence where Verizon has blocked messages based on its political content. Another ISP blocked messages um, that were pro-labor during a point when they were in a labor dispute. And so we don't, the issue is not who's taking over the Internet. No one's taking over the Internet. The issue is, do you want the cable providers to be able to be gatekeepers, to establish a toll booth on the internet. That's what this is about. The internet has thrived because of the open rules that have been in place. The internet was created by the government. You know, the government isn't taking it over. The government's allowed it to be privatized. But what it wants is to be able to use, you can use the roads like an information highway. Right now you can get on the highway and you can go wherever you want. Um, the cable companies want to set toll booths. They want to set um, roadblocks so that you know they have preferred fast lanes and that's what this is really about. And um, we had over 3 million people comment on the FCC rules. So it's clear the public wants that neutrality. In fact, in Colorado, where uh, a Republican senator uh, was elected over the incumbent Democrat, um, the state also p- passed an uh, initiative that overrode a state law that blocked the ability of municipalities to set up open um, Wi-Fi. And um, so public wants uh, a free and it wants a, a free internet. It wants it to be able to something they can access without restrictions, and um, so that's what this is really about. This is about internet freedom, and um, so it's been an interesting week. Um, we'll, we still have to see what the FCC will do. They will have to, you know, initiate a rulemaking proceeding and see what rule does come out. But um, to simplify this as a takeover of the internet, or even more stupidly. As Obamacare for the internet, which is kind of akin to you know, Senator Stevens's comment that the internet is not a series of tubes. I mean, those two are probably the stupidest things ever said about the internet by anyone in public office. Um, it's just misleading. So, But um, we're going to be taking a break in a moment. When we come back, we're going to be talking about a very controversial aspect um, of the Obama administration right now. And that is its war on whistleblowers. And we'll have um, someone from the Committee to Protect Journalists after these messages. You're listening to Cyber Law and Business Report.
4: Stay tuned for more of the Cyber Law and Business Report after this brief recess for our
2: sponsors.
3: Email sales at webmasterradio.fm today and get your message delivered now. Whether you are an online business or domain name investor, you need access to the best names. With over 270 million domains already registered, finding the right names at the best price requires a great wingman. Namejet.com puts you in the pilot seat ShipStation helps online retailers ship orders faster. It's so easy to set up and use. ShipStation gives you tools to automatically import, manage, and ship your orders in the most cost-efficient way. Save money with the best USPS rates possible, as well as a free USPS account. ShipStation integrates with all the most popular e-commerce platforms and shipping carriers. Get shipping done, no matter where you sell or how you ship. WebmasterRadio.fm listeners get an additional 30 days free after the free 30-day trial. Go to ShipStation.com slash WebmasterRadio now. Shipping nirvana starts here.
4: The best gavel-to-gavel legal news and information on the net is right here. This is the Cyber Law and Business Report, only on
2: WebmasterRadio.fm in a minute we're going to be talking with um, Courtney Raj. she's with the Center for um, committee excuse me, the committee to protect journalism um, just before we do just a, a few quick shout outs I want to um, I was able to speak last week at the California Bar IP Institute and um, in Orange County and um, want to thank everyone there for um, that and uh, that if you want information about this broadcast and it's on our blog at um, cyberlawradio.wordpress and so there's a link to that presentation I also was able to speak at the Monica um, Chamber of Commerce has a Tech Tuesday and we have a link to that talk and I want to thank them as well as well as um, I want to thank Miranda McCloskey who has a, a radio program called Lawpreneur Radio and um, she had me on the show um, a couple weeks ago and it just it was just released and I want to thank her as well but um, Courtney are you with us?
0: I am. Thank you.
2: So um, you guys have a report um, on free speech in the digital age. Why don't you tell us a little bit about that?
0: So um, we actually have a campaign called the right to report in the digital age, and that's coming out of concerns raised about the impact of surveillance, harassment of whistleblowers, surveillance of journalists, um, the ongoing restrictions on who can speak to the press And that really grew out of a report that we did a year ago called the Obama Administration and the Press. And what's interesting is that the Committee to Protect Journalists um, founded in 1981, has primarily focused, for since our we came into being, on the global threats to press freedom, but what we saw happening in the United States when President Obama came into office pledging open government, um, but then routinely curbing the disclosure of information, um, aggressive prosecution of leakers, of classified information, this broad electronic surveillance programs, um, that they were having this profound impact on journalists and so we had to turn inwards and examine the real profound impacts that that's having on journalists and especially investigative journalists in the u- journalism in the United States and we recently um, did an assessment of what if any progress has been made a year later and you know essentially very little has been made. Now, what's interesting is that we came up with a series of recommendations for the Obama administrations about steps that could be taken to protect journalists and protect um, the press in the digital age. And um, as we do with presidents and leaders around the world, we sent these recommendations to the Obama administration and asked um, for an opportunity to engage on them, to um, get feedback from them, and hear a response to the recommendations, and we didn't hear back. So we decided to launch the Right to Report in the Digital Age campaign, and we launched that in September and that has three specific asks that are aimed at the Obama administration and getting them to engage systematically and, and meaningfully on these issues and, and figure out how to protect journalists who are working in this, you know, different age of surveillance and tracking and all of this.
2: And what has the response been to this report, and particularly from the Obama administration and the supporters?
0: Well see that's um one of the issues is that we don't feel that we've gotten a, a the response that we would like from the Obama administration we never received a reply to our Um, We sent a letter to Obama with the specific recommendations and asking for engagement, and we never received a reply. Now, we have had informal conversations with some of the officials, and after launching this campaign, which has already gathered around 8,000 signatures and the support of major media organizations and human rights organizations, including the Associated Press, Bloomberg News, Global Post, Slate, Huffington Post, Christiana Amanpour has signed on, you know, Alan Ruspringer of The Guardian has signed on, all of these supporters, um, we finally heard from them that they're working on setting up a meeting. So, you know, it's a year, more than a year after the report, but, you know, we know these things take time, and what we're looking for is meaningful engagement on addressing these issues, and uh, we are still waiting for that.
2: And what has changed in in terms of the 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 approach to the press from say the Bush administration to the Obama administration
0: Well, I think one of the key issues is that things are getting um, progressively more challenging in this environment, and I think it 's less about the specific president and more about the ongoing Increases in surveillance capabilities, data retention capabilities, um, and, and the interest of controlling the image and controlling the message. So it's you know it's not about Democrat or Republican. It's not about a you know necessarily a specific president. But you know we see it getting progressively worse, and it's probably likely to get worse with the next president if we don't put in place mechanisms to prevent that. That said. You know, your question about what's gotten worse, you know, we had, um we saw that Obama came into office promising to be the most transparent in history, and yet there's been this, um these restrictions around who can, you know, cover um events in the White House, who can speak to reporters. I'm sure you've heard about the Insider Threat Program. I know it sounds like something out of Russia or um out of, you know, a more authoritarian, restrictive right. government, but in fact, this is... an implementation of a program that is designed to control who can speak to the press and designed to enable officials to report on each other if they see that their colleagues are having um, unauthorized or unreported contacts with the press. I mean, it's really crazy. And then this effort to control the image by... um, there, there's like a, a, a weekly program that's produced by White House TV, kind of inside the White House. And then these, you know, they're giving access to their internal paid, you know, employees that journalists aren't able to get. We see that, you know, there was a protest letter from the White House. Photographers Association about the fact that they're not given access and they're constantly fed, you know, the the White House official photos. Well, these, you know, it's really important that journalists have independent access and ability to cover the White House and, um, you know, and the administration and, and government. And so that's problematic. You know, we've joined on joint um, letters of protest about uh, the uh, subpoena for James Risen's to reveal his confidential sources, and you know, have been quite vocal on that. The fact that there is an American journalist facing jail time is disturbing, given that the only other country um, in the Western Hemisphere that had an imprisoned journalist is is Cuba this year. So that's not you know the company that we think the United States should be should be joining, and obviously that has a very chilling effect on reporters and on whistleblowers um, throughout the country and around the world.
2: Yeah, and, and this is coupled with, you know, I'm going to get back to the rising case in a minute, but it's also coupled with reports that um, there was the Justice Department were, was secretly monitoring um, about a dozen Associated Press journalists.
0: Mm-hmm. So this this whole monitoring of the press and monitoring of journalists is deeply deeply disturbing and has a chilling effect on all journalists especially you know it's a it's a mainstream media high-profile organization so everyone is hearing about that um, and that that sends a strong message that it's very difficult to communicate safely with one sources and that's why one of the asks of the right to report in the digital age campaign of our petition that we're going to send to the White House is to prevent to we, we're asking Obama to make a presidential um, directive prohibiting the surveillance and hacking of journalists and media outlets. That's very important.
2: I mean, people years pass, and in history and memories fade, but you know, that, that's, that is something that seems to come from the Watergate era, you know, Nixon's, you know, paranoia and hostility towards Mm -hmm. the press um, you had a lot of reporters, you know, I actually met a, a Washington Post columnist from that era who, you know, he, he knew he, he was being wiretapped and he knew he was being followed. He had, mm-hmm. you know, I, he said there was a car outside my house all the time. Um, Jack Anderson, who was a columnist, um, I think pretty sure it was the Post, maybe it was the Star, but um, he just said flat out, yeah, I knew that I was being followed and they, they were sending a message, but, you know. I had my job, and I wasn't going to be dithered, you know. But to some people, you know, that, that, that's very intimidating. You know, the power of the government, um, to, you know, to, for example, to be audited or do other things. That mm-hmm. Nixon, you know, Nixon really politicized um, the relationship with the press, and so it, it's something that we, we often associate as being part of our dark past. And the fact that you know it's it's still alive and well today and, you know in twenty first century America is, is disturbing.
0: I completely agree, but I think that goes back to my point, which is this is not something that's unique to the Obama administration or the Bush administration. We see, you know, governments pretty much across the board and across the world are Progressively trying to rein in information, control the message, are worried about you know they they want to they want to surveil journalists. They want to know what stories they're working on. They want to control information. But you know it's it's kind of ridiculous that they're out there surveilling journalists when, meanwhile, on the other hand, they've given what is it one over a million um, people have classified top secret um, clearances or you know top secret clearances, giving them access to classified information. You know it's it's kind of uh, this. <laughs> hypocritical situation. And I think you're absolutely right that it has a very deep, chilling effect on the press. And we have heard this from journalists that we interviewed for the report um, that we that we wrote, which was actually written by Len Downey Jr., the former editor-in-chief of the Washington Post. We saw this in a recent Human Rights Watch ACLU report that looked at the effect of surveillance on journalists and lawyers. You know, these, these p- roles that um, people journalists and and lawyers occupy these roles where they're really working in the public interest. And they have, you know, when, when you crack down on journalists, you're impacting the broader public's right to know and access to information and right to know what, you know, what their government is up to.
2: Now let's jump to the rising case. And so, um, you know, he's a reporter with the New York times and um, who's actually written, written a book on um, basically the, the secret wiretapping going on by the government. Um, can you tell us a bit more about that?
0: Yes. So, um, you know, James Risen is, is a journalist with the New York Times, as you mentioned, a former colleague as well, and he is one of the nation's preeminent, Um, investigative journalist and his you know he's brought to light really important information that was unknown um, to to the public and that is important for us you know as the public to understand in this in this process and um, you know he is now being subpoenaed he's been subpoenaed multiple times it's now it was um, his objection to that was rejected by the court and so now if he does not Um, essentially act on that subpoena, he faces jail time, as I mentioned, or fines. And fines can be equally chilling on journalism because it can, you know, journalism is not a highly paid profession to begin with, and it can certainly then have a chilling effect in that way. Now, um, what what we see is that Holder has, uh, Attorney General Holder has said some things like, you know, no journalist is going to go to jail for doing his job under my watch. Well, first of all, you know, statements by an attorney general does not equal policy, right? So there we would like to see some actual action taken, which is to withdraw the subpoena. Um, we actually delivered a petition signed by more than 100,000 people, including many Pulitzer prize winners and other leading journalists to, um, the department of justice calling on them to withdraw that subpoena. And of course, as usual, we're just, dis- you know, we're disappointed by the lack of response and the lack that, you know, the government has not seen what an impact this is having on, you know, journalism and the public at large, um, you know, and, and I think one of the problems also about this about this case is that they're, you know, they're not recognizing the important role that investigative journalists play. And um, this administration has brought more espionage charges under the Espionage Act more than twice the total number of such prosecutions since the law was enacted in 1917. So that's that's really problematic, and so the subpoena requiring Jim's testimony is part of this broader crackdown on leaks and whistleblowers.
2: And well, um, what exactly is the case they want him to testify in?
0: So um, they believe that they have identified the leaker, and they are essentially seeking confirmation um, for that. I mean, if you want to boil it down. <laughs> Um, they want to confirm that the information that he um, wrote about in his book, which had to do with a bungled uh, CIA operation in Iran related to sharing nuclear secrets and potentially the, um, I guess, the plans for uh, nuclear weapons program, and they, you know, want confirmation from him that the person they've identified is the leaker, and he has refused time and time again and said, you know, he, he will not reveal his source or confirm or not, you know, that 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 person is the source. Now, I think the problem when you add surveillance into this mix is you know, you could get to a point where you it's not up to journalists and their ethical responsibility to provide to protect their sources because the government can find technological means to bypass kind of that ethical responsibility of the journalist by You know, surveilling their activities, um, you know, figuring out who they're communicating with online and
2: such. Now, um, this has also led for calls for a a federal statute to protect um, journalists from having to reveal their sources. And where where does that stand on Capitol Hill?
0: You know what? I'm I don't have a lot of details about that. As far as I know, there's. I haven't heard any developments recently, you know, as a global organization, we um, focus on bringing attention to the issues. We work with broad coalition of organizations um, who are more focused on, you know, specific legislative efforts, etc. We don't, um, we don't lobby or anything like that. So um, I don't have specifics on that. But I think that What we can say is that the U.S. government's ongoing legal pursuit of Ryzen is sending a terrifying message to the 124 journalists who are jailed worldwide on anti-state charges. Because that is essentially what the Espionage Act is. And what does that do? That detracts from the United States' normative power abroad. And 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 so, yeah.
2: That's that's an important point. I mean... We've We spent a lot of time on this show talking about the NSA scandal and the the impact it has had. We actually had a, a show talking about you know the economic and political impacts of the NSA scandal, and one of them is our inability. It, it just it blunts our ability to be an advocate for freedom and internet freedom, and you know here, um, you know it enables. You know what does a repressive state say when when they just say we're doing what the United States is doing?
0: Right, and I mean obviously several states you know China, Russia, Iran they don't need an excuse. It's you know a convenient rhetorical excuse, but nonetheless it certainly detracts from the 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 normative power the United States has the you know the city the the nation on a hill that that special role that the United States has played, and it really um, lends a you know the hypocrisy of us out on one hand promoting press freedom condemning press freedom violations and um, you know in promoting internet freedom on the one hand while on the other hand we're you know the United States government is undermining that, and I think you can see that with you know the the funding and from the, on the one hand for U.S. aid and and MEPI programs that are designed to promote internet freedom, and then on the other hand, they're you know funding and and, and promoting poli- um, uh, policies that undermine these very programs by you know surveillance by. Trying to create backdoors into, you know, into encryption and 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 into hardware, and you know, it's it's incredibly it's incredibly problematic. It also sends a really bad message abroad when we hear messages about the U.S. Um, surveilling journalists, because that again gives a green light to other governments to say, hey, yeah, we would love to know what our journalists are reporting on and what you know. What they're investigating, and it's hard enough in many of these countries to even do any sort of investigative journalism. And when you add on top of that the idea that they're going to be surveilled, and so they can't even communicate, um, you know, safely with their sources, I, I would be really concerned about what a world looks like if we don't have um, investigative journalism.
2: Um, we're going to take a short break. When we come back, we'll hear more from Courtney on um, this issue and uh, more about the Committee to Protect Journalists after these messages.
4: Stay tuned for more of the Cyber Law and Business Report after this brief recess for our sponsors. Building better search engine rankings takes the right formula. Tracking those rankings is super simple. All you need is authoritylabs.com. the best gavel-to-gavel legal news and information on the net is right here. This is the Cyber Law and Business Report, only on
2: webmasterradio.fm. And we're back, and we're talking with Courtney Ratch with the Committee to Protect Journalists. And, um, Courtney, can you tell us a bit about your organization?
0: Um, sure. Uh, the Committee to Protect Journalists is, well, the name is pretty self-explanatory. Um <laughs> We were founded in 1981, and we work globally around the world. Uh, we use journalism to protect journalists, and um, we were started because of concerns about what was happening to our colleagues uh, abroad. Wow. And the we promote press freedom worldwide. We take no government funding um, or intergovernmental funding. And we defend the right of journalists to report the news without fear of reprisal. And so we seek to ensure the free flow of news and commentary by taking action whenever journalists are attacked. Um, that can include imprisonment, being killed, kidnapped, threatened, censored, or harassed. And one of the ways that we do this is we systematically track Each and every killing of a journalist, we produce an annual prison census um, where we look at the number of journalists imprisoned around the world on December 1st, and um, that's unfortunately a disturbing number. Both of those are at historic highs in the past two years. Um, We also track on a regular basis daily. We're kind of like a news service for attacks on the press around the world. And we also work not only on individual cases, but also on broader issues like protecting the platforms where journalism occurs or ensuring that, um, you know, issues like surveillance, that the press freedom dimensions of that are understood.
2: Now, we, we've had um, someone from your organization on in the past, I think when we were talking about um, some of the um, drug cartel um mm-hmm. Uh, murders that were being done on for in on journalists there in Mexico, and um, but l- looking at your website, I mean, so far this year, 42 journalists have been killed, mm-hmm. and um, last year, 211 uh, journalists imprisoned, and that's both online and offline. I mean, bloggers in, are going to jail, bloggers mm-hmm. are being killed, and so you know, from an online perspective. You know, being in, you know, it's not just because you're not boots on the ground, you're not, you know, standing at a, with your little um, press badge and you're, you think you may be safe on the internet, guess again. And um, so um, I think what you guys do is a very valuable resource. And just seeing the number of journalists that have been killed um, in the last few years, it's quite alarming.
0: It is a cr- incredibly alarming. I mean murder is the ultimate form of censorship and the fact that we have I mean that journalism is literally a deadly job and yet it is so essential to to democracy and to the ability of people to participate in their in their you know, in their societies and they're so vital in the balance of power between a government and its people that when they're killed, it has this really profound exponential impact. Um, with the imprisonment of journalists, we also see that this is part of this broader trend um, that in the U.S., but, you know, abroad that I was talking about, this uh, efforts to control the message, to um, clamp down on on criticism and dissent and critical voices or or, you know, those who are Poking too deeply into um, corruption and human rights abuses. And it's deeply problematic that we see so many imprisoned journalists. Um, but it's you also see that journalists who are fleeing into exile. Uh, we have a journalist assistance program where we provide emergency assistance to journalists who are facing imminent threats. Um, and in some cases, we're able to help them, you know, flee into exile or leave their leave their hometowns for a bit so that they can get out of harm's way. Um, but you know the the past couple of years have been some of the most—I mean, they are the most dangerous on record since we started keeping, um, you know, tallying these the this information, um, you know, years ago.
2: Now, um, your, your background—I found your background interesting, um, mainly because some of the similarities. You've got your PhD from um, American University in Washington, D.C., mm-hmm. and um, that was the School of International Service.
0: It was, yeah. I did my. I actually um, did my research in Egypt uh, prior to the uprising, and I was looking at the political impact of cyber activism. Uh, before there was a political impact, actually, I was very interested in looking at the impact of new media on politics. And when I went to Egypt in 2006, I actually thought I'd be looking at the impact of satellite television and Al Jazeera, and all of that um, in Egypt. And what I found instead were, I mean, there were other people studying that. So I wanted to look at something unique and I started looking at, and meeting these bloggers and these young people who were, you know, using the space online that was much freer and more open um, and had this kind of cross ideological ser- solidarity that didn't exist in the mainstream media. And that through, their engagement online and, and building these, these relationships with each other and across activist networks, um, I thought that there would be something interesting there. And indeed, um, you know, there, there was a political impact as we saw in terms of the uprisings that emerged and were led by these youth leaders who had created this, you know, infrastructure and movement um, over several years prior to the 2011 uprisings.
2: And when you were at um, American, did you do any work with the Professor Yukata?
0: I didn't, unfortunately.
2: Okay, you also went to Georgetown, and that, that's where I got my law degree. Okay. So, um, yeah, with two, two, two of my alma mater's you covered, <laughs> and um, and so in, and then you worked with UNESCO for a while. Um, where, yes. where, where was that in Egypt?
0: No. So I worked with UNESCO in the headquarters in Paris and I was look. I was managing their freedom of expression work in the Arab region and helping develop the strategy for promoting freedom of expression, including independent media in the Arab region, as well as producing um, a major report for them on world trends in freedom of expression and media development and looking at what are these global trends that are happening, uh, with respect to freedom of expression on the legal front, on the front of journalist safety in terms of independence of the media and pluralism of the media and what sort of impact and, and trends we were seeing over a period that we started looking at with the financial crisis and the real expansion of um, ICTs, international um, information communication technologies and social media and you know, what were the impacts there. Um, It's interesting because, you know, UNESCO can work in a way with governments that many NGOs, you know, most NGOs really can't in some regions. So it was interesting to see, for example, um, a program in Tunisia to work with the security forces on training them how to work with journalists and how to, you know, deal with journalists during protests. What is the role of journalism in democracy, of, of independent and free media in democracy? And so, you know, I really feel like I've, Um, worked on developing a 360 degree view of this press freedom and journalism and looking at it from all these different perspectives. Because, you know, the UN is also an institution that has normative power, um, but it's also can be a slow and bureaucratic institution. So, you know, I think different groups, the UN plays a certain role, NGOs bring something and academics are also important for you know, putting into context what's happening. And of course I also worked as a journalist on the ground.
2: Now um, you get your, your undergrad degree at Berkeley. Are you a Californian mm-hmm. originally or?
0: I am. Yes. I am a sixth generation Californian.
2: i Northern or a Southern?
0: Well, I'm from Los Angeles, but I am torn between North and South. I loved Berkeley. Um, and, but my parents are still in Southern California. So I get to visit both. I have family both uh, near San Francisco and near LA.
2: I, I can appreciate your conflict like, having lived in DC <laughs> and, and living here in Southern California, having friends in Northern California. I mean, I can't, three of the best places to be in the US, frankly. Mm-hmm. But um, I want to thank you for taking the time with us today. And um, tell us if people want to find out more about your organization, where, where should they go?
0: Great. Well, I hope that people will go to cpj.org and check out the more about our information. Um, you can see the, our data and our research there. And I hope that you'll look for the right to report petition and sign on. We're hosting it on our website, but we're also hosting it on change.org. And so if you search for right to report petition, CPJ, you'll find it. I hope you sign it. I hope that people will share it with their networks because it's vitally important to protecting not only press freedom and journalism in the united states but also globally
2: i'll be happy to sign it so uh, i want to thank you for joining us and um and please um keep us posted if there's any new developments but you know this is an important battle and uh so we wish you the best of luck
0: thank you so much appreciate the opportunity to talk with you
2: all the best um we only have a few minutes left but um i want to highlight some upcoming shows we're going to be having and um we um, so far we've int- we've been once again very fortunate because of our relationship with Miami Book Fair International, um, which is going on um, starting next week, November sixteenth through twenty third um, in Miami, and with the Street Fair on the twenty first to the twenty third. And we've so far been able to talk to uh, some of the authors, um, and hopefully we'll be talking with more. Um, yesterday we had a great conversation with Tavis Smiley. Who has a, a book on on the death of a king? He follows Martin Luther King um, in the last 365 days of his life, um, actually 366, I think. And um, it's a fast fascinating book. And you know, Tavis is you may well know; he's a well-known media figure, um, very entertaining. And we had a great discussion on the issue, um, death of a king. So we'll be airing that shortly. In addition, um, had a great discussion with ross baker on um his bipartisanship debt and uh he's a highly regarded professor at rutgers university i actually met some of his students after interviewing with him and uh, he's just a very engaging man and um so we, we had a great discussion really about the state of politics on capitol hill today and so we'll be airing that shortly and uh we, uh, we're still working out the details with a number of other notable authors and we'll keep you posted as that comes along. But definitely, um, we're looking forward to highlighting and we thank uh, the Miami Book Fair International for their assistance and uh, for having uh, for bringing us some very interesting and stimulating discussions and we look forward to airing that for you. Um, other than that, um, that's all we have for this week. Um, we, again, the net neutrality battle just is getting interesting and interesting interestinger, and interesting uh, To paraphrase the curiouser and curiouser quote, but um, you know, keep in mind, don't don't allow this to become sloganized. You know, taking over the internet doesn't mean anything. It's it's a meaningless phrase. It, that the people who say that don't know what they're talking about. Um, you know, this is not a takeover of the internet. This is about preventing a takeover of the internet by the cable companies and that's what this is about this is about you know be allowing people to to make you pay twice um, pay for your internet access and pay um, and charge people to reach you and um you know that's just a, isn't part of a free and open internet so this is Bennett Kelly with the internet law center i want to thank you for joining us today Uh, More information, again, check out our blog, cyberlawradio.wordpress. Follow us on Twitter at cyberlawradio. And um, check out the Internet Law Center. We're at internetlawcenter.net, and based in downtown Santa Monica. This is Ben and Kelly. Have a great week. Nice talking to you today. Be safe. Court is adjourned.